You're listening to The Mix Podcast, where we explore user behavior, emerging technologies, and how to design better digital experiences. And I think that's what I really love about being in UX, right, is the fact that it's so multidisciplinary that you can learn so much from other people because they bring in a new perspective. It's kind of almost making sure that you have that kind of lifelong learning spirit. It enables you to do that because you problem solve in different ways. You don't want to use the same methods and same methodology. You want to push yourself a little bit. Hello, I'm Marek Pawlowski, founder of Mix. And that was Rachel Liu, lead service designer at Pearson, which is a big publisher and education company. And she was talking about what's really one of those paradoxes that I think you only come to understand when you're inside the world of UX looking out. It's a tough one to explain this, but I often get the sense that when business leaders are looking at UX from an external perspective, what they see is a capability, and and that capability is only really defined by delivering a set of defined outputs. And of course, one of the things that you come to realize when you're on the ground, like Rachel is, is that when it's at its best, user-centered design is something which reveals the needs for outputs that maybe weren't knowable before. And as she alludes to, that means that people who are in these UX roles must be you know, almost chameleon-like in their ability to assimilate in new industries and to nurture a real polymaths enthusiasm for learning about skills and, and roles that other people have. And it, it's a tricky one, that, because you've got to strike a balance between sharpening those more obvious skills and deliverables, which are going to make you valuable in a role today, and then also keeping yourself learning about those things which might come to define your role in the future. So I want to tell you a bit more about Rachel and get into our conversation in a moment. But first, a couple of reminders about things that you might want to get involved in in our MEX community. We've got two dinners coming up. One is on the 26th of February in Barcelona, and that's alongside Mobile World Congress. And the other is 26th of March in London. Now, both of these are part of our ongoing dining club series where we bring together people like you, people who listen to this show, people who've been to the MEX conference, people who are getting to know MEX for the first time. And we've got really two very simple objectives for these things. Good food and good conversation shared around the dinner table. And the discussion, of course, usually turns to UX and design and all that good stuff. But more than anything, it's a chance to do that most important of things. Meet some like-minded people, hear some new ideas, and keep things fresh in your mind. So if you want to come along to either of those, uh, or if you're going to be at Mobile World Congress and you just want to meet up for a, a chat with me, then send me an email, designtalk at mobileuserexperience.com, and we can make that happen. So back to my conversation with Rachel Liu. You know, someone was asking me the other day about what part of mechs I enjoy most. And you know, the honest answer is it's these podcasts. Getting to talk in depth with someone about their career, their aspirations, their thoughts on design. You know, really, it's a pretty joyous thing to have the chance to do every couple of weeks. 
But the question also got me thinking about, you know, why and, and what makes for a good conversation. And I'm not sure, but I reckon it comes down to a couple of things. You know, firstly, there's got to be an element of learning about something new, which in Rachel's case, you know, this really came through in the way that she was able to share her experiences of China, a place which I don't have nearly enough knowledge about. And second, I think these chats are best when someone is willing to open up, not just about the shiny, obvious successes, but also the things that they've found hard at different times and the things which have shaped who they are. And quite often those two things, that the hard lessons and those most significant turning points are in fact one and the same thing. So Rachel actually started out studying computer science and, and I hadn't realized that she also had one of her first roles doing some pretty hardcore mobile programming at Symbian uh, before she then went on to focus on, on user research. And she spent time at Education First um, doing user research that shaped that company's approach to markets like China and Russia and Indonesia. Uh, and she's currently leading service design at Pearson, which is a, a pretty huge publisher and education company. So I'm going to be back at the end. But for now, here's my chat with Rachel Liu. I hope you enjoy. Rachel, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for taking the time to join me. Something I ask most guests who come on the MEX podcast, whereabouts are you dialing in from today? Um, I'm based in the London office and yeah, it's great to be here actually. Thank you. Well, I was thinking probably the last time we caught up was when you spoke at MEX, which would have been, well, I guess a couple of years ago now. Um, But I also always do a little bit of digging before I sit down to record a a podcast with a guest. And I've got to ask you something, because in doing so for this one, I discovered something that I didn't know about you. I was looking down your LinkedIn, and according to that, you actually started out in the world of mobile with some time at Symbian back in 2006, 2007. Is that right? Yeah, that was actually my first industrial placement um, as part of my course, which was actually doing computer science of business. Amazing. So this was like 2006, 2007. So it would have been just before the arrival of the iPhone. And I guess arguably the peak of Symbian's arc as a platform for for smartphones. And I'm sure a lot of people have come through the MEX community will have had experience in that world themselves. You know, that was the starting point for a lot of people who have been involved with our conferences and the podcasts and things Mm. over the years. But can you remember what it was like to be there at that time as a student? It was actually my first city experience. So um, that itself was really exciting. And I actually chose Symbian over Oracle at the time. I got another offer because it was mobile and it was something that we weren't taught at university. And I I was almost knowing that that's an emerging technology at the time and exploring the potentials of mobile and what it can do. It just felt like an exciting time that I would not be able to learn that compared to Oracle databases, which I do cover during university. But to actually think about it before the explosion of apps, actually, what could it do? How could it help you? So I was just generally quite interested in that field, but also more from a maker perspective. So one of the reasons why I did computer science was trying to kind of think of myself as a maker where I can create things. And I used to love like Lego, the creation and building things. And it was almost kind of another tool 
And that's why, yeah, I chose Symbian at the time. And being there, it was just great. Like it was just learning from so many people and just extend the skills that you learn beyond the universities, the real world. So it's just obviously comes, it's just more exciting to see the possibilities. Uh, interesting. Well, I didn't realize that your degree was in computer science. And I think you're right. I mean, at that time, probably one of the most interesting places to put those skills into practice. I mean, for those listeners who aren't familiar with the history of Symbian, I mean, at, at that time, I guess it was being looked to as being the smartphone platform of the future. It certainly had the largest market share around the world until, of course, the arrival of the iPhone, iOS, and then Android. Uh, and Symbian's trajectory took a rather different turn and eventually, I guess, fell into to obscurity. But at that point, you know, that if you were using a smart mobile device, you were more likely than anything else to be one which was being powered by Symbian's operating system. So quite a, an interesting place to be trying out those, those skills. Yeah. But also, actually, Symbian code is very difficult language to learn, I have to say. <laughs> so I think even learning it as a niche is, just makes you grow a lot to kind of be able to kind of go, wow, I can actually write a mobile app. It obviously so much easier these days. But back then, writing anything that's an interface and stuff, even the smallest things, you're just like, wow, I can do this icon. I can actually, um, I think it wasn't even color then, actually. So, um, yeah, we've gone a long way. Yeah, I mean, I guess therein lies a bit of a clue as to perhaps why Symbian didn't become the dominant platform. Yeah, I think that's a pretty mm. familiar story for anyone who is in that world is some of the challenges around coping with all of the different device screen ratios, all of the different specifications, you know, coding these things using some pretty complex languages. It's a yeah. world away from the, the speed with which we can deploy stuff these days. But thinking to your presentation at MEX a couple of years ago, in there you were talking about um, some of the nuances that you'd observed in China, particularly in relation to education, which is the, the area where you work now. But I remember distinctly, you know, when you were talking about that, you were also sort of picking out some of the pitfalls that you saw in the, the first generation of ed tech uh, that, that was out there. You know, you were talking about some of the things around cognitive overload, you know, just too much information being supplied. Um, this idea that more features are always better rather than necessarily having a clear path through there for students. And also this age old problem, which I guess was familiar even back in the, the Symbian days of trying to take an existing experience, either from the world of print or from desktop computers and, and channel that down into mobile without really thinking about what, what that makes. Now, that was a couple of years ago that you were talking about that at, at MEX. But I'm wondering, having been a couple of years in the role that you are now at Pearson Education, what do you feel the situation is today? You know, what, what's changed um, since you gave that, that presentation a couple of years back? Well, I think one of the interesting things that's changed in terms of China is the speed that they're innovating and that we really have to be quicker. So I think my last trip, which was last year, actually, I was just so surprised how mobile native they are, not just digital native, but mobile native in terms of the payment is turned so cashless. That even trying to flag down a taxi, I couldn't flag one down. You have to use the app. And I couldn't use the app because I, I don't read Chinese and I can't pay. I can't connect it to a local payment. 
Um, so I felt quite disabled. It was really weird to like in few years for it to be so cashless so that was one thing that I observed in particular for China as a whole um, which then means that for education it's still buoyant it's still in demand where they are really thinking about AI a lot and Pearson is kind of going through a transformation itself from that print to digital and I see different levels of maturity within Pearson so I've been in a project where they innovate like anything. They really understood how to provide the service, thinking about the online and offline experience for learning and really combining that mix. So it was brilliant. It was more greenfield. And that was, again, the demand was coming from China, not in the rest of the world. And, and what, what, does the, what does the Pearson name mean in China? You know, when you turn up as a representative of, of Pearson there, mm. um, what sort of connotations does it have in, in the world of education in China? Funnily enough, um, the project I was working on, they weren't known as Pearson. It was a different brand. It was Wall Street English. Um, and so branding is really important. And Pearson's, they don't really hear much about Pearson. They hear about the Longman Dictionary. <laughs> That's something that they're quite familiar with. Right. So these are sort of individual properties that Pearson owns and then uses the, the local brand in China. Yeah, because they don't have the understanding of Pearson as much. But they do understand Pearson in terms of tests and assessment, which was quite interesting to know that, hey, it might not be for actually like the learning aspects, but maybe more the assessment aspects um, of the education system. So it, that was kind of, yeah, new to me. One of the things I, I remember from from your presentation at MEX was you were talking about, I guess, some of the fundamentals that you'd observed in earlier trips to, to mm. China about the difference in the way education is seen there. And, and I came away, and correct me if I'm wrong, because this was a couple of years back, but I, I remember having this impression that yeah, it was a real case of laws of supply and demand giving a bit of a different situation there where there was, I guess, a, there was greater demand than there was supply of good quality education in China. Therefore, it made it this really competitive place for Chinese students and that you didn't get second chances, that you had to really be succeeding at all levels of, of education to progress to the next step. Uh, is that something which you know continues to inform the sort of appetite there is for the, these digital education experiences? What I found really interesting, so at the time I was looking at um, the teenager year group and the parents there, and we've also looked at the slightly younger ones, I think, in the last two years. So young learners from like five to about the 10-year-old and the parents in that aspect. And what was interesting was that there is that generational shift where parents actually really care about the kids enjoying the learning process. Now, that is something that was quite different to what I've seen. So parents who've obviously had some sort of education and can still afford to, they want their kids to enjoy and have a good study habit at the beginning rather than going, oh, I have to memorize, I have to cram because that was their experience and their pain point and they don't want that anymore for their kids. But at the same time, it's still competitive because they're starting earlier. They are trying to learn English and get ahead not at the teenagers anymore, at the like three, four, five-year-olds, which was really interesting. So the demand has shifted younger 
for me. So that was for us just, yeah, was a very different take on things. So it's, it's again, knowing that, hey, it changes a lot of the times. You have to still go out there to do research. I think that's one key thing. Knowing, be aware of the assumptions that you are making just because something that was a few years ago, but there are things quite changing, you know, throughout time, it means that you do need to check in as well and make a conscious choice of like, well, who are you looking at as well? Who are you talking to? And that might change too, that sort of dynamic. So it's ever evolving. Yeah, I mean, as a service designer, it's hard to think of a meteor sort of challenge to get stuck into because as you say you've got those multiple different stakeholders there you've then got within that multiple generations of different stakeholders who might have different attitudes you know whether those are the students or parents who are at different Mm. stages themselves or the teachers and the different attitudes there i mean that's a pretty complex set of stakeholder requirements to, to get your head around um do you do you think that working for an organization like Pearson or or in general, what you're seeing in in ed tech, people higher up the organization are now starting to understand the value of really digging into the the research nuances of those user behaviors and then rolling that into the way the product is, is developed. You know, is there an understanding of just how important it is to get deep into the lives of those different stakeholders? So I think the last few years, because we were, we started as a new team, actually. So there was three of us when we joined and it was part of like global products, but working more like an agency. So we don't get siloed. We look at different problems. And I think that's very helpful, actually, to know that, hey, there's different levels of maturity if we're in our stakeholders, there's different levels as well of understanding. And um, how do we even bring value within UX when they don't understand it either? So that itself, um, showing evidence and really in a compelling way, having the sort of narrative and how you present back the insights is actually quite critical, but also getting them involved in a process. So I think before I looked at stakeholders like going, oh, you know, um, we have to it like has a barrier and so it gets frustration like there was a lot of frustration but now I've changed the way of thinking where like actually we need to have empathy for our stakeholders and how can we work together better because it's a complex problem as you said it's a system level problem which means you need to have different perspectives and actually they can also bring in certain value too and using that to kind of going okay well these are our assumptions here. This is what we are thinking. And then go out and validate those. And I think having that sort of methodology and that kind of thorough kind of process and guiding them through that has been super helpful um, for them to understand, but for them to really see the value as well. So here, I guess we're thinking about stakeholders in the, the internal sense as opposed to... Internal to, to, sense, yeah. Yeah, yeah sure. Yeah. Um, and I mean, when you've experienced those barriers in the past and I guess everyone in a role like yours experiences this to some degree you know there's there's always that sense of you know balancing the sort of time commitment that people have to make to understand the kind of research that's flowing from your work and presenting that in an effective way a way that actually makes a difference you know what have you found to be most 
effective? You know, have you found there are any real transition moments where people start to get the importance of what you do and it starts to have an effect on their own work? I actually found the first part is really starting small. Um, I don't underestimate the power of small. So before I took things like granted, like going, oh, well, we have to approve by doing some usability tests, or we have to prove by starting basics and showing some of the kind of interaction design level, you know, a bit more solution focus. But actually, um, it's showing in a tangible way, it's kind of useful to kind of almost bridge the gap and build the trust. I found that that's kind of key. Now, another thing I wanted to ask you about, Rachel, is I guess if you look at where you've got to now with the kind of work that you do, which would be defined, I guess, as service design, experience design, and then you think back to where you started with computer science and that time at somewhere like Symbian, Mm -hmm. was there a moment when you started to think of what you did more in the terms of design rather than computer science do you see a differentiation between those those two things or is it all part of that uh, maker spirit that you alluded to of, of just wanting to to make change happen in some way I guess I've always really loved art and design um, from a young age and yeah I even got disqualified from that art competition before <laughs> for um pa- they didn't believe that my parents didn't help me like with uh, the the competition so it that was quite interesting so I've always had it in me that's kind of like my inner child uh, amazing what, of... what was the piece of artwork which earned you this disqualification <laughs> so it was actually a competition I think it was we were close to home base at the time and it was a Christmas card I think competition and they didn't believe that I could make a pop-up card at the age that I was how old were you I think I was 10 or something at the time um so I got disqualified and I didn't win my 20 pounds um, and then my classmate won it and we made that card in class so I was just almost like what <laughs> yeah so I've always and actually funnily enough a lot of my school friends remember that a lot and I I've always enjoyed the creativity part I guess and I wanted to combine the two knowing that technology is almost a vehicle and it's exciting I guess in that space and that kind of maker space is combining the two together I mean the reason why I took computer science with business is also thinking about the business aspect too so I've kept it quite broad for a reason in some aspects and it's more the difficult part I guess the challenging part was combining it but the emergence of UX kind of came about at the right time at the time, it was disguised as more like um, human-centered design, computer design. Like, um, so it it was a it almost evolved, and and as I evolved, the role evolved, and it kind of was good timing in a way. Yeah, it's really interesting hearing the different parts that people who I guess started around the same time that you did in this world have taken because. You know, I guess when you think back to then, the definitions were were very fluid. A lot of what is now seen as being user experience work as a kind of broad umbrella term was being made up as people went along, essentially. You know, yes, there were some um, 
educational backgrounds to this, which perhaps were more inclined towards leading that way than others. But a lot of the stuff that was being done was so new that it was requiring that those educational definitions be changed. And, you know, I've had people on this podcast who got into this world through theatre design or anthropology. Uh, you know, it, it really seems that, if anything, the more diverse the background, the more likely it was to lead to doing interesting and useful work as, as your career progressed. And, um, yeah, that would certainly seem to uh, bear out with, with the path that you've taken as well. And I think that's what I really love about being in UX, right, is the fact that it's so multidisciplinary that you can learn so much from other people People because they bring in a new perspective it's kind of almost making sure that you have that kind of lifelong learning spirit it enables you to do that because you problem solve in different ways you don't want to use the same methods and same methodology you want to push yourself a little bit that's something that probably why I even enjoy being in that space of UX compared to being in software development where there is a very like not black and white but they think of things very, very logical black and white in some aspects. And it's difficult to look at things in a new perspective because they want to be proven right or wrong. <laughs> so so I think it's almost UX allows that kind of involvement and fluidness about it, which I really like. And being education in the education sector is another almost area where people do generally even the employees wants to grow in some ways a lot of the backgrounds are from teaching and they generally you know they make great facilitators they can actually transition to kind of UX if they wanted to and I have actually mentored someone through that within um, being in uh, education first in my last job and I see that it is possible so, yeah, I actually find that's actually really important that it's useful to have people from different disciplines. Looking across the whole of your career, this strand around education seems to have been a really recurring one. Yeah, you spent that time with education first. Now you're working with, with Pearson Education. And I guess it, it, it begs the question in, in my mind, do you see yourself as being a, a teacher? first and foremost yeah, in the roles that you now do, as well as obviously having deliverables that you've got to produce for your stakeholders. Does that interest in education come from a desire to in some way teach and coach and pass on what you know? Yeah, I think it became quite natural and for people in my team, and they've actually pointed that out. So even in one of the workshops where we had numerous very I think people that I've never met before and I had to facilitate that workshop but one of the key things that they mentioned they were like were you a teacher in your past life <laughs> because the way that you share the stories the facility you know the insights and everything you just bring them to life like as you would do as a teacher but then a lot of the skills are quite transferable in a way everyone could be a teacher in some ways everyone has you, you're both a teacher and a learner and I think if you have that kind of mindset, then it, you can be more curious and you want to learn more and you question things more. And I think that's ha fundamentally how you grow. And I maybe perhaps I've seen how people think about motivation, how people think about building habits. You know, these are kind of 
applicable for everyone. It's not just within education itself. It's just part of growth. Yeah, I'd, I'd agree with that. I mean, I've, I've always had this working theory that the key thing in motivating someone to be an effective teacher is whether or not they are passionate enough about the particular subject area to mm. really be excited about passing it on to someone else. And it doesn't matter whether you're talking about woodwork or whether you're talking about digital design or, or whatever it is. If someone is genuinely enthused about what it is they're trying to share, then they find effective ways to share it. And of course, there are some skills that you can learn to, to improve that, some, some techniques. But I think it, it's got to start with that that passion and enthusiasm, right? Definitely. And the best teachers I've seen are the ones that just keeps you engaged. And actually, they keep you engaged, not just by going, sharing what they know and presenting stuff. They actually find really creative ways for you to learn and immerse yourself in that learning process. It's not just a like a lecture delivering things to you, instructing you what you need to learn. But actually, that's why I find different ways of learning, like peer mentoring is a way to learn. You can, yeah, you can have different forms of delivery and format. Some people prefer just to have that kind of bite-sized listen to certain podcasts or to different aspects. So it's kind of making, creating that environment for you to grow and finding one that works for you, I think is important. And probably that's been quite key for my different career transitions. You know, like I know I learn by doing, I learn by immersing myself, I learn through other people, I learn by sharing experiences, but I also learn when they share experiences too. It's kind of informal learning in a way. Education makes it very formal with assessments that you have to do and stuff, but it doesn't have to be that way. Do you think that gets harder as you get further on in your career to strike that balance between the demands on you as someone who has had now a certain number of years of experience to, to share and to teach others versus keeping that desire for ongoing learning fresh in yourself? Yeah. How, how do you, on a day-to-day -day basis, do, do you think about that balance and, and how you strike that for yourself? I think you have an awareness when things started to get a bit mundane or what you perceive a little bit boring. It, it's, a, it's almost a signal that you've kind of go, right, I'm probably in my comfort zone. I'm not being stretched enough. Ah, uh, dreaded just, comfort yeah. zone. <laughs> yes, yeah, so I think that's almost a trigger to kind of think, well, okay, how else can I grow? And actually, if we wanted to break silos, if we want to really have good user experience, you know, if things that I feel uncomfortable, conversations with marketing, they might not naturally, what you know, kind of have the same values or care about the same sort of things that we do. But if we want a better experience, we have to find ways to work with them so that you can already say that that's maybe a bit of a stretch. And then you're like, well, how can I kind of facilitate a healthy conversation within that to start the, a moving vehicle, right, for change? So I think that really looking at very different disciplines to your, your own actually really helps. So, yes, I look at within education, but I started to look a lot within health. Um, because that's something that's very important to me. Um, and you see that, like, well, what are the constraints within the systems that we have in place? So taking really a step back as well helps you to look at things differently too. 
Um, so I purposely sometimes immerse myself in uncomfortable situations. So say I know personally that I don't like talking to people, well, I don't feel comfortable, say, talking to people who are more senior than me, because somehow I feel that I maybe don't have the authority or don't have the knowledge, don't have that wisdom compared to what they have. So it puts me off, then I'm not myself. But now I purposely use that as a challenge <laughs> to try and break that almost and actually accumulate those little small wins as well. And, and that is growth. You're learning. You're learning new tools and techniques as well on the way. Absolutely. And I mean, I guess while seniority in inverted commas can yeah. sometimes be a reliable guide to the level of, of wisdom someone is able to share about a particular situation, something I've found over all the years of, of doing mechs is that it's often not the most reliable guide. You know, in the moment, I've seen, particularly at our MEX events, outstanding contributions from people in the room who have probably got the least seniority, so to speak, in terms of being at the very earliest stages of their careers, having just come out of, say, uh, a university course um, or being in their, their first role. But by virtue of enthusiasm or by virtue of, as you alluded to, that desire to maybe dip into diverse different industries and diverse different experiences they're able to bring something to a conversation that someone who has been in a role for 20 plus years uh, just doesn't have access to uh, and it's I think it's so important to have all of that coming together uh, at different places uh, I mean I often think about it in the context of events because that's what we do and the need to have that mm -hmm. diversity of people involved with events but I think it's true you know, whether that's in your day-to-day -day work or whether that's in the conversations that you're having. And it's amazing, and perhaps this is something that you're now starting to get a sense of as you spend you know, more time in this career, um, how much you yourself value speaking to people who, say, have just come out of university because they have a different set of wisdom to the one that, that you have access to. And it's no less valid simply because they haven't been in the career as, as long as you have. Exactly. And I think sometimes even the way that we introduce ourselves, right, we actually start to say job titles and everything rather than really uniting in a way that it's a topic or an area that we're really passionate about. And that starting from there actually really helped because it kind of removes all of those boundaries, invisible boundaries that we place. ourselves. So an example is that recently one colleague within Pearson, they decided to launch a book club, a virtual book club. And it was about women playing big, um, trying to play like, you know, because we tend to put ourselves and play quite small. So how do we play bigger and make bigger impact the way it's, um, what we want in the world? And it was really interesting, the people that came together, and it was a huge variety coming together to discuss topics like, what does it mean to me to play big? You know, it's applicable to anyone. And it was just really interesting, the different phases of their lives, the ones who are returning back to work after being a mother, kind of going, oh, well, I don't have that confidence anymore um, to make that career change. I don't know how to fit it and stuff. And actually, that itself is much more deeper, meaningful conversation because we don't we don't judge, we don't make that judgment, and we don't associate with like job titles anymore. It is really about that kind of topic or the problem that we have a shared common thing that gets us together and connected. Well, I guess it's that thing of multiple 
perspectives and the value that they deliver. I mean, it, it's fundamental to user research, right? That this is yeah. why we go out and try to speak to such a, a range of people when you're thinking about how that might then go on in, to inform a product or a service or a, a long-term strategy is you often see things from a different perspective and you get your insight from having those different lenses uh, to look at a situation. Uh, and I think that's something perhaps if there is a, an inherent value to being in this sort of world is it, it gives you that understanding of its value because that's what you're doing day to day when you're going out and, and talking to people as part of your research process. Definitely. But there's also something to keep in mind that certain cultures are not naturally as open um, or are more reserved. And I think that's something really important. How do you bring in those people that probably do have a voice? How do you create that safe environment and that space that they can feel comfortable to share? Um, because it's not within their norm. Say like for Japan, I know that the whole hierarchy, that invisible part there, is a lot of respect for elders and so forth even within Chinese cultures and things and I see that within like a almost a constraint for myself sometimes. So what's been your hardest experience of that because I guess in the work that you have done mm. I mean you've had particular exposure to this you've spent time doing this kind of work in places like China there's always been that sort of sense of going out and being a bit of an explorer into other markets and other cultures and the work that you've done what was the hardest one that you had to overcome to try and get people to open up a little bit more and, and be able to get the kind of insight that you needed? Interesting enough, a lot of it's not from particularly the users on when it's a one-to-one. It's definitely when we're doing ideation or sharing things with state internal stakeholders and there's the hierarchy level there. I actually find that that's the harder one to really get their voices heard, to get their ideas and their input. So the ones who are actually on the ground running the service, running the processes versus the ones that are their managers that are overseeing it, that's the challenge I found time and time again. Um, and really being a bit cautious of that and they're not familiar or, or find it very unusual almost to kind of have this like open collaborative way of working and recognizing that is almost like, well, how do I create that first safe space for them? Have you um, had any uh, examples where you feel like you have been able to cross that chasm and, and get people to, to open up any techniques which you feel uh, particularly effective at getting to that point and it's it's a tough thing you know i guess and it probably differs from from market to market from situation to situation there's this book called culture map that i read and it's a really good framework to think about um they really mapped out all the different ways of whether it's communication whether it's autonomy you know the the range and seeing where vaguely they're at like so you've got to be aware whether it's within their personality or whether it's a cultural thing so even distinguishing that first and building relationship remotely I think is quite tricky but I do find having a conversation with that person on the one-to-one -one first always makes a difference and maybe perhaps sometimes they feel comfortable thinking through certain things so they're a bit more reflective and giving certain things up front for them to think about, you know, that, that helps them out almost to kind of navigate through this uncertainty type thing. 
Um, but that, yeah, I, I do feel every single time that a slight one-to-one before a workshop, before anything, getting to know them a little bit on a personal level makes a huge difference in some form, whether it's virtual, whether it's face-to-face. Now, it, it reminds me of a, a story, actually, a friend of mine, going back a few years now, ended up mm. being the sort of go-between between an American organization, which was acquiring a Finnish organization. And I remember him talking about one of the things you just alluded to, that need to recognize that different cultures have different cadences of thinking and then sharing those thoughts back to a group. Mm. And the particular challenge he had to try and help, I guess, both sides of that equation overcome was that the American company was used to situations where if there was a silence in a meeting, it was generally a bad sign, the fact that the sort of conversation had ground to a halt. Whereas for the people working in the Finnish organization, that was very much part and parcel of the culture. It was an expectation that if a question was asked, time would be given to sit Mm. and contemplate and come back with a meaningful answer. And he, I suppose, ended up being... I guess, in the role of cultural facilitator between those two things to help each side understand that, no, this wasn't actually all grinding to a halt, uh, that in fact, this was just part and parcel of it and they were going to get to where they needed to get to, but there just needed to be that understanding and that respect of the different cadences of thought between different cultures. Yeah, definitely. I mean, that book explains it really well with some of the things that I observed as well. And I had to learn through the mistakes that I've made too. So um, yeah, like I think one key one is when at the end of the meeting, any questions? Well, not everyone's comfortable with that. And maybe if there's a channel and a way that they can just follow up a bit more privately, you know, they might be comfortable. And I know that for Asian cultures in particular, seems to a reoccurring theme to, to be able to do that a bit more. Well, I'll, I'll put a link in the show notes to uh, to that book so that people can check it out and hopefully find some some useful tips in there. Do you ever think about the role of fun in that? Um, It makes me think of some of the sessions which Patrizia Bertini, who's been involved Mm. with the MEX initiative in different ways, has run for us over the years. And she uses the Lego Serious Play facilitation method, which has a natural element of playfulness and and fun to it that tends to get people to open up. But one of the particular techniques I remember her explaining of that was this way in which uh, you have to try and get people to leave their previous baggage at the door of a facilitated creative session, particularly when you're trying to do co-creative activities, and to try and find some way for people to tangibly express that they're no longer so-and-so XYZ job title representing Mm. XYZ company, that actually they're someone who just has a certain set of characteristics or a certain approach to creativity that they can bring with them without that kind of baggage. Is that something you've ever come across in in the work that you've done? That's actually a really good point. I mean, um, we did some co-creation with kids and I think naturally you have to almost make it fun for them to engage, right? So um, we're, we're quite lucky where we have an experience lab in London where we have beanbags, we have that space where we can actually 
it's quite modular in terms of design. Um, we can make it into a meeting room. We can make it to a brainstorm room. We can make it quite lively. Even the colors that we've chosen is a bit more colorful. So even creating that environment, we even put a bit of music on in the background. So it's not silence when they're actually drawing away, creating stories for us. So it's finding the, the medium that resonates with them that people universally understand as well was quite key. Observing actually teachers, <laughs> adding the element of fun of what they do for warm-up, how they loosen people up, is actually um, quite, yeah, a good way to, to see it. Like, And I probably, without even knowing it, incorporated elements of that and brought that in into my sessions. But you're absolutely right. I mean, getting them to just be a bit more looser and not think about it as like, we need to get the correct answer. We need to be quite rigid about this. It's quite serious about it. Loosen up is probably quite key. And so that kind of icebreaker needs to be done a little bit differently too. Not the generic ones that you have, but within the problem that you're solving, is there a different way to kind of get people together? Show that a bit of that vulnerability as well, actually. Sometimes I found that was quite helpful for me as a facilitator to add that bit of motion part to it. Um, by being a little bit vulnerable, sometimes that shows that, you know, I'm open, I'm honest, and kind of has that welcoming aspect to it. But if you think about how would you make it fun for kids, and will they join in? I think that's a good way to almost naturally <laughs> bring in elements of fun. Yeah, ab absolutely. Um, and I, I suppose it also gets to this idea about what it really means to be in the world of, of experience design and in some sort of role which is tied to, to user research going forward because these are not perhaps the traditional skills which have been associated with this area and yet they're so vital to the future of it I think and now that almost every organization is putting in place some kind of user experience function um, mm. sometimes you know with more or less degrees of effectiveness but now that that's become kind of table stakes the question then becomes well how do you ensure it remains a competitive differentiator what are the skills of the people who you're putting into those roles that are going to help you to drive it to, to the next level uh, I mean is this something that you are thinking about in relation to your team at, at Pearson it sounds like you're in the phase where that team is going to grow over the next little while are you starting to think about you know the kind of people that you want to bring into those roles who might have that additional level of skill to be able to facilitate in more creative ways to be able to draw out more insight than perhaps with traditional methods yeah I guess in some ways We've started to do some of that um, internally, but it is reaching to a point where I'm like, I need different ways. What you mentioned about the, the person who's in that kind of theatre design background, I mean, that's brilliant, you know, kind of that acting wise. That's a really good way to even loosen up and prototype, right, what that experience might look like. Um, so I do think it's it's super important. And we're at that stage where we've grown quite steadily, I would say. In a good way. So I, I didn't realize that actually I was thinking about culture within the team, that each individual plays a role in shaping that. So before I was just like, oh, well, I need to try and push that or trying to create that space. But everything that I do and every small things and actions and stuff 
accumulates and adds in to that culture. And so does everyone else naturally. So it's almost facilitating and giving them the almost the freedom to to kind of make things happen as well. It could be quite, you know, and I think that's quite important. So it's less about kind of telling people what to do or how to do it. It's giving them the space and the permission to actually explore and to experiment a bit. And I think that's something that's still, I guess, hard to convey with, I guess, within Pearson sometimes in the sense that we talk a lot about experimenting and we talk a lot about you can fail. But I still don't see that kind of risk taken almost because it's almost like, oh, well, you kind of failed. But hey, we haven't. Um, and I think it's still within a little bit of that comfort bit. So how do we push that a bit more? The ones who are a bit more risk taken, a bit more of a change agent sort of mentality and quite adaptable. Um, it's probably quite important. So building that even resilience within our team is quite important too to navigate through some of the challenges that we have as we grow out. And that's something that I haven't thought too much about, but because now we are just about to hire our first service designer, yes, I am starting to think about what form that might take. I mean, from your experience, what do you find have been useful? I think, as you say, often one of the biggest challenges can be that trade-off between the sort of security of the well-trodden path and one which stays within acceptable parameters for success without taking too much risk. And if we recognise that there is a value to taking what could be perceived by some as being a risk of bringing on people with, say, uh, a more diverse background, bringing on people with experience which seems tangential rather than directly related to an area, but that you feel may expand the overall team's capability by bringing in those different viewpoints, then it seems to me that really evidence speaks. So the more people, not just within your organisation, but across this whole community can do to document uh, how those kind of experiments go and what were the hard parts, what were the parts which worked better than expected, and to sort of provide that the community of practice with a body of evidence which allows people to justify that more easily, then maybe it becomes a simpler thing to be able to go to budget holders or people who maybe are not as familiar with the day-to-day of the area and say, this is what we need to do. Uh, and to take what can be perceived as a risk because you know that it's going to lead to a greater reward in the future. And yeah, that that's easier said than done. Um, often, you know, teams uh, have got enough on their plate just <laughs> fighting for, you know, day-to-day things and, you know, trying to, um, to keep the team growing and delivering to the deadlines that it needs to deliver to. But I've had the, the chance on this show to speak to a, a few different people who are trying it in different ways. One which springs to mind is the stuff going on at uh, Lowe's. The I guess they're the equivalent of uh, B&Q, you know, a big DIY mm-hmm. chain in the US. And they were able to get a, a mandate, I guess, from higher up within the organization where there was a real belief that they needed to try some different things. And we're trying all sorts of different experiments, you know, everything from producing uh, comic books, which illustrated uh, some of the things 
things that the organization might aspire to do differently in the future to building you know these big um, immersive environments to test out some of the new technologies and because they were able to tell a story around it because they're able to document where that succeeded and how it related back to the business and I think there was an awareness from the senior members of the team that that storytelling had to be compelling to take people along on that journey with them they were able to build that you know step by step and, and have some success with it um, so I guess there's probably that always that element of understanding that if you're wanting to push things forward then you've got to be conscious that you have to tell a story which allows others who don't understand the nuance and the detail of what you're doing because it's not their day job to come along on that journey with you yeah I, I've actually found even storytelling through talks and I think everything that I do it, it's almost something that people can relate to easier but it's also a bit of an aspiration and inspiration um and because they sometimes almost either the story could be told a bit more visually it's quite compelling I think for them it draws their attention so I guess we get back to that power and value of teaching again and I'm curious if you weren't working in this area of digital experience design what would you choose to teach um First of all, that's a really difficult question because I have so many interests. Well, but we I didn't think... <laughs> get together on the podcast to do easy questions alone. Yeah, um, but I guess one part that I've been on the journey of well-being and holistic kind of health and lifestyle. And the Eastern world has told me about kind of yin and yang, the balance, right? Things in harmony and stuff. And that has been, I guess, such an eye opener in how I think about well-being. Because a lot of the times we think about being prescribed things by doctors. People fix us, right? Uh, rather than looking at ways that we can fix, not fix, but really solve the problem for ourselves, how we can be better. And that has been a big limitation for me previously. Um, I never thought about it in that way, how having certain, cultivating certain good lifestyle habits makes a huge difference. I've shifted from using used to be stress eating or eating so much stuff to like I'm pain free. I don't have cravings for things, but also be able to live quite mindfully. That to me, had, that kind of mindfulness plays a big role. I think in everything that we do, we can be better by being mindful, even as designers, as a human being. I think a lot of the times it technology and everything moves so fast we forget to be present and to be whole and to take space so I think um, for me that I found that that's really important and that's a message that I guess I, I would like to almost share um, from my own personal experience. Well it's one of those really important balances I think really in all walks of life but I, I do feel there's a particular urgency to it sometimes for people who work in roles which naturally are at the cutting edge and at the very sort of fastest pace yeah. of technological development and also uh, with that added responsibility of being in a role where you need to have uh, an ongoing empathy and a really deep empathy for the people that you're trying to understand in your role as an experienced designer uh, yeah that that requires a lot of mental bandwidth uh, and I think probably very important that people take the time to remember there needs to be 
a balance and there needs to be a, a mindful approach to that otherwise the sort of pressures that you put on yourself to you know, remain at the top of your game on in both of those areas can be pretty demanding yeah exactly i think that's something that i had to try and work and overcome and that mental kind of resilience is probably a good way to put it <laughs> well look it's been such a pleasure catching up Rachel um, it's great to hear what's been happening since you last spoke at Mex and you know do stay in touch and it would be great to um, hear what else comes out of your work at Pearson and what else comes next in your career wonderful so thank you so much for having me it's been great pleasure to catch up again so yeah really enjoyed it That was pretty great. It's such a pleasure to get to talk to someone with deep expertise in particular areas and about all those things which go to shape a career. Now, I'm going to post show notes with links to everything that Rachel and I talked about, uh, including a video of that talk that Rachel gave at MEX. Uh, and you can find those in the podcast section at mobileuserexperience.com. Don't forget about the upcoming dinners. 26th of February at Mobile World Congress in Barcelona and 26th of March in London. I hope to see you there. And in the meantime, uh, please keep sharing these podcasts far and wide. Uh, have a think about which of your friends might enjoy listening and just send them the link. You know, we're on all the major podcast players like Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, uh, or just search for Mex Design Talk in whatever podcast player you happen to be using. I'll be back soon with more. Thanks for listening. Goodbye.